Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us on Twitter at UCI Law. Good evening, everyone. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this presentation in UCI Law's COVID-19 and the Law series. And today's talk is titled Lessons from the CARES Act, Banking for All in the Time of COVID-19. Today's discussion features UCI law professor Marissa Baradarin and will be moderated by Michelle Jordan, and I'll introduce them both in a moment. But first, I want to recognize the people who made this evening's event possible, and they are Rebecca Bergeron, Jillian Henry, Dennis Sloan, and Marianne Soden. Thank you so much for pulling together this program. So we are so fortunate to have Professor Marissa Baradarin at UCI Law and she joined our faculty in 2019. Professor Baradarin writes about banking law, financial inclusion, inequity, and the racial wealth gap. She is a prolific scholar and has authored two books, How the Other Half Banks, which is published by Harvard University Press, and The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. Her Color of Money book has been highly praised including recognition as the best book of the year by the Urban Affairs Association. Professor Baradaran and her books have received significant national and international media coverage and have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, American Banker, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, and on NPR's Marketplace, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and PBS's NewsHour. Professor Baradarin has advised U.S. Senators and Congressmen on policy. She's testified before the U.S. Congress and spoken at national and international forums like the U.S. Treasury and the World Bank. In fact, just this past Thursday, Professor Baradarin testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services, and she testified on the topic of inclusive banking during a pandemic. Professor Baradarin is a brilliant lawyer and a thought leader in her field, and we are so very fortunate to have her here at UCI Law. Welcome, Professor Baradarin. Thank you so much. That's too generous. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our moderator, Michelle Jordan. Ms. Jordan is principal of Jordan LLC, which is a consulting firm that helps CEOs and their companies with their strategic communication needs. Ms. Jordan specializes in issue and reputation management, crisis communications, and brand strategy. Her communications work also includes managing media relations for clients whose situations have placed them and or their organizations in the spotlight. And as she has shared in the past, reputation is a capital asset and should be treated accordingly. Earlier in her career, Ms. Jordan also served as president of the LA office of the GCI Group, which is a division of Gray Advertising. She also headed corporate communications for Digital Pictures, which is a pioneer of interactive video games based in Silicon Valley. She also held senior management positions with the Dylan Schneider Group and Hill and Milton in New York. Ms. Jordan was born and educated in the UK and lived and worked in London, Paris, New York, to
Toronto, San Francisco, LA, and Orange County. She's also an Orange County Business Journal, Women in Business on a Read. Ms. Jordan once said that she would like to meet either Mary Antoinette or Elizabeth I because they lived extraordinary lives that continue to fascinate. Well, the very same thing could be said of Michelle Jordan. Her life is extraordinary and she continues to fascinate. And I am so grateful that she's a member of UCI Law's Board of Visitors and for all of her incredible and valuable contributions. So thank you so much, Ms. Jordan, for taking the time to moderate this evening's event. It is such an honor and such a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me, which I believe now is a cue to start, correct? So it struck me that when this series was first put together, it was really driven by the mega crisis of COVID-19. But by the time we're speaking tonight, it's been overtaken by the global explosion of the Black Lives Matter movement. And both have huge uh, economic impact, of course, and uh, potential consequences. And each is a full-blown topic, which you, uh, Professor, are an expert in. If I may call you Mesa, it's easier for me. Thank yes, you so please. much. <laughs> yes. Um, I know that you can keep us spellbound for hours on either of those, but what I'm going to try we can do in this sort of rather limited time is touch on both. Mm -hmm. But what I'd like to do, if I may, is start with just a little bit more of a personal introduction to you. We mm -hmm. certainly are well aware of your academic excellence, which is uh, impressive every time I hear it. Mm -hmm. So in a Huffington Post interview, you described yourself as immigrant, liberal, Mormon, Muslim, feminist, lawyer, mother, <laughs> who generally dislikes labels. This is your chance to add something else to your list. Is, you know, so, how did, with a background like that, land you in mm -hmm. the scholarly pursuit of banking and the law? Um, well, that's a, a, a lot of, of uh, questions there. And uh, yeah, I think the list was to defy labels because I think once I get into one, you know, there is this 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 rabbit hole of identity that comes with it but yes i um i grew up you know i'm an immigrant to uh, the united states i came when i was uh, nine um, from iran my parents were um, activists there and um uh were sort of you know against the shah but also against the khomeini so kind of stuck politically in between and we were kind of expelled from the country by sort of um, violence and, and other means and, and were gratefully accepted into this one um, by Ronald Reagan, actually, um, who uh, passed, um, you know, some pretty liberal immigration laws. Um, and then, you know, I grew up Shiite Muslim, but uh, my family converted to um, Mormonism here. Um, you know, to some extent, I am um, since, you know, uh, a little bit rootless in, 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 in religiously, but th that was my background, my shaping sort of to um, very religious uh, upbringing. Um, also have always been liberal um, because of my birth in uh, my parents. But, but you know, I you know, grew up in all over the country, um, in New York and um, uh, in Iran and in, you know, all, all over the country as my parents moved around a lot. Um, and, and I think part of what that um, has given me, you know, spoke several different languages. I, I speak three and, and what, what I, I think I've gained from that is, is the ability to, um, um, I, I just, I can see myself in a lot of different um, 
people's lives. And, and because I lived in America with a lot of um, communities from all over and, 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 you know, in pretty poor communities, you know, if, if I'm being honest, we, we never, you know, my parents didn't own a house until I was, um, you know, almost uh, ready to go to college. And so um, my work in inequality and poverty and, and racial justice really stems from this, this idea that I think we just, um, people who have elite educations tend to discount um, what, what, uh, how much ingenuity and and uh, and and smarts a lot of people who live in those vulnerable communities have to have to survive. And I think the the narrative that we tell about um, those communities and poverty in general is one of irresponsibility and laziness and all this stuff. And then it's just does not comport with uh, my experiences. And, and so I think, you know, being in between a lot of different communities, as I am now, I don't think there's a single community that would, you know, be, I would feel wholly comfortable in because I'm not no longer Iranian. I'm not fully American. I'm not, you know, fully Mormon or Muslim or any of these things. But um, I do feel a kinship with all people who don't feel uh, included in a way. And so I think, um, and then the banking re research just came from my professional um, background, uh, being at the, the center of the financial crisis in New York at a Wall Street banking firm from 2005 until 2010, just kind of like blew my mind and, and how um, public all of the banks ended up being and how much the Fed and, and policymakers were involved. And then, you know, just observing the political commentary on, oh, well, we don't have the funds for schools and we don't have the funds for this stuff. And yet I watched, you know, from my desk, you know, Wall Street, trillions of dollars being going to certain banks. And so I just, um, that's where my sort of um, personal life and my professional life meet is, is looking at this just one sector of, of banks and equity and, and, and credit and saying, what myths have created this completely unequal society um, that we have now. And, and there's several um, strands of that, and I'd be happy to follow um, your lead um, and, and, and some of these questions as, as it relates to right now. Well, you know, thank you for doing that, because we always think it's so interesting when we hear from somebody to understand the background and all of those things that, of course, landed you where you are. But let's sort of come all the way up to the future to the topic for tonight. Mm -hmm. So um, you've written two great books. Um, how is COVID-19, and we have to now add, of course, the, uh, the uh, global Black Lives Matter response, highlighted the problems that you write about? Right. So um, in a way, um, it's hard to be sort of, you know, to say, to, to have to be like, I told you, I told you this was a problem when it's become such a problem. So let me take just one, the inclusion aspect. And the hearing this past week was on we're trying to get stimulus payments out to people fast so that they can keep their homes and, 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 and just, you know, live. We're telling people you have to stay home. And then so they need money to pay rent. And, and so many Americans, um, more than half of Americans, it, it is that, that paycheck, every single cent of that is, is called for. You know, it's food, it's rent. Um, so what happened is, you know, the, the, the government wanted to issue these checks and it turned out that there was you know, three hour lines in Manhattan with people coming from all five boroughs, like a man bicycling in from Queens to save the $3 fee because he couldn't find the check anywhere and except for this one brand. So literally for weeks and weeks, there's been three hour lines at this one ATM for people to pull out unemployment benefits or this $1,200 stimulus fund. And then a bunch of rural areas, a bunch of elderly Americans who are not getting these funds because they don't have a bank account or they don't have a bank in their community. And so they have to wait five months 
up to five months for a check to come. And in five months, I mean, what, what, you know, rents and, and food have, have you missed? Um, so, so these are problems of financial inclusion that I've tried to be kind of, you know, ringing the bell on for the last 10 years, because what happened during the financial crisis is, is a intensifying of some of the trends of the last several decades, which is that banks have just up and left a bunch of communities, leaving a whole bunch of people without banking services. And you think, well, who cares? Like, I don't need the bank anyway. But what that means is a lack of a debit card, right? If you get paid in cash, how do you pay your bills in cash, right? They won't accept your electricity bill, your cell phone bill. So what a lot of people have done is go to check cashers or, you know, money, uh, sort of payday lenders or any of these, you know, prepaid debit card. And these things are very expensive and the expense is borne primarily by low-income people. The other thing is bank fees, right? Banks, you know, most of their income comes from fees and the only customers that pay fees are those who don't have enough, you know, have to pay overdraft fees. And so those, those are the things that, that are highlighted and there are simple solutions actually to this stuff. And one of the things that I've been pushing for a while is, you know, a, a post office bank, right? So you could go to the post office, which still is in every community that banks have long deserted. You would go there and you would just have an ATM. You could get your check there, simple bank account with a debit card, and then you would be linked up to sort of the network and be able to shop online and all of this stuff. It's, it's to me like such a no brainer thing. Um, but we have yet to adopt so it. How, how is that? I mean, you know, when I was a kid growing up in England, yeah. we had post yeah. office savings accounts, right? I, mean, I, I know, yes. <laughs> one of mine. Um, so yeah. how, how did that go down? Did it go over well or like a lead balloon? At Congress? The concept, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I've testified several times on a bunch of different things. And, you know, every time you're, you know, the, 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 the hearing is ostensibly about one thing, which this time was about financial inclusion. But there are, you know, one of the things that I, uh, you know, lots of people who work in politics know is that a lot of um, uh, times what the lobbies care about is more important than what are actually good ideas. And so this hearing, I think, ended up being about a blockchain um, deregulatory bill that um, they were pushing. Mostly the Republicans, to be honest, they were all the questions were blockchain oriented. And, and so just you get the sense that it wasn't really about inclusion um, because the, the simplest way to give people financial access is to give them the thing that we all use, which is a debit card and an ATM. And, and that's simple, very low cost, you know, um, but with the, the thing that they seemed to want is blockchain. So I think my testimony was received well. I think it was, but, it, but at the end of the day, I don't think um, there is enough political power to push for something like this. And I think that's part of the, the struggle with passing policies like this is you need a lobby. Who's going to lobby for the unbanked people in rural America? I mean, truly, like the congressmen don't really, I think a lot of times have their best interests at heart and they need to get reelected and they need money. So who's going to pay them? It's going to be some well-financed financial institution or some other sector lobby, and it's not poor people. So a lot of these ideas tend to sit dormant. Um, sometimes they get passed if there's a crisis. Uh, often they don't. So I'm not super hopeful on that one. Well, I hope we don't have to have another. Before we move from that, there was one question that came in earlier, and it touches a little bit on what you were saying. So I'm going to just take a hop over to that, if I may. It says, I'd love Mercer to address barriers to access to relief funds delivered via prepaid card. I mean, it seems such a logical thing to do. It is logical. It is absolutely logical. I mean, you could just, just give people a debit card. And that is the easiest step from this is the problem, easy solution. We have the technology. We don't have to invent a new thing. We don't have to put it on the blockchain. It is there. 
and a lot of us actually, and, and the, the data is very clear on this, for people who earn below $50,000, their primary mode of financial sort of access is a debit card. They prefer that to credit cards, to any other app or whatever. Um, and so you could actually just give benefits to a debit card. Now you have to have a way to like put cash on that debit card without a fee. So some of the prepaid cards that are like you would get at a store, 7-Eleven, um, you, one, you, if you lose it, it's gone. The other is every time you check your balance or you put money on it, you have to pay a fee. So what the, the, the treasury could do is just issue a prepaid debit card, no fee. It's just your money on that card and you can use it linked to your social security or whatever. It's, it's really easy. It's not a technological issue. It's just, you know, politics. So is it, is, is it the same as the post office? It's going to need another crisis to make it happen? Or, or a really motivated um, bureaucrat, you know, and I think this is where I do have faith in um, career people at Treasury and FDIC and the Fed. And, and I've, I've worked with a lot of these people and, the, and there are people who just genuinely get hung up on an issue and, and get things done within an agency outside of the political channels. And so I think that one, um, I, do, I do know some folks at Treasury that I think could, could roll something out like that um, in time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. just let's go back to the banks for a moment. Um, I mean, they are the gateways to the monies available in the CARES Act. Um, how have banks performed in discharging fair practices? Right. And well, from what I've heard is if you've got a great relationship with your banker, you go right. to the, top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, in a way, it's not fair to ask banks to do more. Than, I mean, it's like, you know, saying like, you, you know, I'm going to put you in the tiger cage and if the tiger bites, I'm going to blame the tiger. Like a tiger is a tiger and a bank is a profit oriented institution. And what we've allowed for banks to do, they're no more evil than any, any of us, but, but it's about policy and, and the structures. So and what we've allowed banks to do is, is turn, there's five or six big banks that control 80% of the market. So they've closed up all the branches that are no longer fruitful and they've cut off the customers that they don't need right so this is small businesses most most of them don't need credit from banks so they they rather have big businesses and so when a program like this goes from treasury and says here's a big pot of money and we're going to allow the banks right to hand it out to whoever they want now it didn't they didn't say whoever you want but basically we're not going to put you know as long as they comply with these three things it's totally at your discretion and so, you know, they gave it to their biggest customers. And that was obvious. I mean, I was talking to reporters before this happened. And I'm like, this is what's going to happen. Anyone who knows about banks was like, this is what's going to happen. And then the reporters come back and they're like, hey, it turns out it was the big clients. Because, of course, that's what's going to happen. It's like, you know, pay. It's an executive compensation, right? You, 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 you get what you incentivize. Um, and so what we've incentivized is sort of a winner-take-all market at, in banks, a profit-oriented system, no public duties and no public mandates. And that's fine. I actually am fine with banks going out for profits. I think they should be smaller and, and not cause so much destruction that the public has to then pick up. Um, but I think if we want to give access to people, we just go around the banks and just give it directly. I mean, the Treasury could just hand out the PPP loans through the Small Business Loan Administration. They could do it through any agency that we have. They don't need to go through banks. Um, so that was one of the big problems, I think, here. Um, I just had a, a comment come up, which we'll, we'll circle back on if we may, because it's relevant, about the, uh, <clears throat> the debit 
uh, debit cards. And uh, this, uh, the comment is, I did receive my stimulus package yeah. by a prepaid card. Four million Americans did, but the problem is how it was packaged, looked totally like a scam, and includes small, but still ATM and other balance fees. Apparently yes. people were throwing them out. That's <laughs> yes. heartbreaking. That's really yes. appalling yes. To, to hear. Yeah, so some, some people who were already set up um, on the system of Treasury did get prepaid cards, but yes, there were fees. Um, so, the, so, so this is the problem is they have to go through some other third party servicer to get these fees out. So it's either Visa or whatever, and they have to take their cut, right? So they're not going to do it for free. And so they have to, you know, um, charge fees and whatnot. And what I'm saying is put it in the post office. The post office is still one of our last democratic organizations. It has a public mission to serve every community regardless of cost. The post office will come to your house way out in the boondocks, even if they make no money from it. And, and that's like, you know, per the U.S. Constitution. And that's why, you know, in your home country and most European countries, most even developing, developed uh, or other sort of um, countries in, in, in um, Asia, uh, South America, all over Africa, um, they have postal banking, right? So, and, and the U.S. did too. And, and this is because the post office is a natural sort of public institution that is available. Yeah, not for profit. No, not for profit, exactly. And so, um, so, so, so this is the, the thing is like, you need to give the debit card, but you can't charge people. You, this is just money that, because, because here's the thing, I mean, those of us who have enough money to have a bank account, I don't get charged when I use my debit card. I don't get charged when I go to my bank and put money on or take money out. They do it free for certain customers. Um, because the payment system is a federal payment system and banks get access to it, it's all public. Um, and so we, we just charge a toll to poor people. And that I think is just fundamentally unfair. So we're going to dig a little deeper into that in a moment, but before we get too bleak, what's worked? What's worked in the past? You know, again, postal banking worked in America. So I'm talking actually in, the, in just in regard to the CARES Act. I know it's a little bit early. Oh, what worked? Yes. Oh. You know, the stimulus payment, the unemployment benefits were quite um, healthy, you know, and, and I think um, it was a bipartisan bill and, um, and I'm, I'm, I think it was fast and it was effective and it went to the people who needed it. Um, now, there were some things that they had to come back to, to to increase. And of course, there are ways to to critique it. But that was great. I think the the spirit of the PPP, the small business loan thing, if it had been administered to actual small businesses, um, would have been great. Um, I think a lot of the, you know, um, investments in, in some healthcare um, industries and, and hospitals were long overdue. And, but you know, we should appreciate that too. The Federal Reserve just this week um, issued a new monetary policy sort of um, lending facility for small businesses. First time they've ever done that, despite lots of people pushing them to sort of be more inclusive in their monetary policy. They just did that. Soon, it's too soon to say, but it's a really um, great move. Just today, um, uh, there was a Senate hearing in which Congress, uh, sorry, Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown, who I've worked with quite a bit and I really respect, um, asked the Fed to consider how their policies affect racial equality. Um, and it was just a really um, stunning, um, you know, and, and, and positive uh, uh, thing to explore. And I think the Fed has been receptive. I mean, they know that it is a public accounted uh, for, you know, it's an, it's an institution that is accountable to the public. And this is, the, the public has demonstrated 
that they care about this. I mean, that that is what the people on the streets are saying is like, enough, um, do something. And and I think every agency, especially the Fed, but inclusive of the Fed, needs to focus on how their policies have caused these problems because it's not just the police, right? Um, it's not just, I mean, the police is the most obvious and uh, horrible, horribly salient feature of a whole system, but it's the lenders. It's the people who, you know, been foreclosing on these homes. It's the banking deserts. The, these are, you know, grocery store deserts, um, Fed monetary policy. So during the financial crisis, when the subprime crisis blew up, yeah. the black community lost 53% of their wealth, That's right. which, yeah. which they have not recovered. And the Federal Reserve, instead of you know, putting in trillions to save homeowners. That was one option very much on the table. Uh, they chose instead to buy up the toxic assets from the banks and, and let them recover. You know, so we're talking about Goldman Sachs and the investment banks. Let them recover 100 cents on the dollar invested and let homeowners get foreclosed on. And so that, that is the kind of stuff that is the back burner fire that then you get, you, 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 create these unequal structures and then you light a match and, and how do you expect people to sit at home and and what's been heartening about this wave of protests is i mean i joined one in san clemente that if the fact that like san clemente had hundreds of people out you know um uh, i just think this one has just gotten to people um i hope in a way that it looks to be that you have a majority of people um demanding change so i'm hopeful so I'm going to come back to that in a second, but you yeah. touched on obviously the fact that you you felt that as a result of every that what has just happened, there's a move by the feds to take another look at this. What what what, what do you expect? What what do the what do you expect? What do you hope the banks are going to do? I mean, I was reading just yesterday that um, I think it's B of A, Wells Fargo, I think Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have, and there may be one more. They don't have one black in senior leadership. Mm -hmm. So, I yeah. mean, I could say what's wrong with that picture. We know what's wrong with that picture, but, mm -hmm. but what can we, what should we expect of the banks? Um, I, so I am, I am the type uh, of person who I don't, I don't think we um, can wait on corporations to lead the way towards social change. That, that is not, they, they are structurally, um, not able to do that. So I think what we need to do is create policies that incentivize the right kind of thinking, right? So I don't care if JP Morgan, I mean, you know, I saw this picture of Jamie Dimon outside Chase uh, Bank um, or JP Morgan, I don't know which, which CEO, which bank, but he was kneeling, you know, in, in, in um, protest of Black Lives Matter. And, and, you know, my response was like, get up, go back inside and give people back their homes, right? Cut out the performative, justice right so even if and, and, and the the lack of diversity is appalling but you know even if you bring in the diversity and your policies still create these structural inequalities that's not enough and so i'm not i don't think jp morgan is going to up and tomorrow say oh we're going to stop you know exploiting these communities um because there was profit there there's profit there's always been profit in that exploitation and so what we need to do is say you know what JP Morgan's going to be JP Morgan, but we, we can stop that exploitation by saying you may not sell this kind of mortgage. You may not, you know, um, be so large and so powerful that your lobbyists can go to the Hill 
and buy whatever legislation you want. I mean, that's essentially what happens. And we have five or six lobbyists for every one lawmaker, legislator on Capitol Hill. Yeah. So any any person who tries to pass policy that says, okay, we got to you know make J.P. Morgan less implicated in this racist system is going to face five lobbyists with money versus who? I mean, who really is on that other side? And so I think um, those are the things I just, I, I want them to have less power over people's lives as opposed to counting, waiting for them, for their hearts to change and for them to really um, look out for the interests of people. I mean, I, I would love for them to do that, but in the meantime, I think we need to, to um, have the society that we want instead of what the society that JP Morgan decides they want to provide us, right? Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I, um, I read a recent study uh, and it was really about why don't the underserved trust banks? And it was appalling to me that 25% of US whole households are mm -hmm. unbanked or underbanked. And the survey indicated that 50% say it's, it's thus because 50% don't have enough money to keep in the accounts, mm -hmm. uh, geographic location, but 30% mm -hmm. of the underbanked or under or, or unbanked households mm -hmm. here, 30% say they don't trust the banks. And why should they? I mean, truly, why should they? I mean, if you well, don't have me, enough money. Yes, well, okay. So they? Okay, so one is um, the that, the lack of trust is much higher in black and brown communities. Yeah. And part of that is, is this history of, and I, I go through this in my second book, of, of truly just exploitative practices of, you know, taking deposits from black communities and lending them to white communities from, from you know, like some acts of true violence within bank branches to keep black customers out. Um, before FDIC insurance from just, you know, taking money and not, not, it not being there when you went back. And so a lot of this kind of gets passed down um, from, you know, grandparents to parents who say, don't trust those institutions. Like they've never worked for you. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, this just lack of trust for police. There's just been so much bad behavior and, and so many instances of salient bad behavior that you just said, you know what, I'm not going to take a risk, but there are good banks, of course, but there's been so many instances of me being treated poorly that I'm going to take my money out. And then outside of the racial context, and this history is just very, very uh, tragic and, and kind of shocking, but outside of that, um, you know, if you're poor and if you have, you know, I think it, the, the recent is, you know, $2,500. If you can't keep $2,500 always in your account and, and you dip below that, you're going to get these like penalties and fees and they're going to seem random and punitive. Like they'll build, right? So you can with overdraw and then get, these fees stacked up. So by the time you go back to, you know, finding out that you've had fees, it's, it's already passed, you know, due and you now owe $150. So that happens to you once and you don't trust the banks with your money. So you'd rather go to a check casher, which is objectively more expensive, but it's a reasonable choice at that point, right? This is what I mean by, I, I trust the poor to make the rational decision. And in this, the rational decision is to, I know the fees that you charge me, I know they're high, but these banks charge these weird fees. And, and I get these statements that are very hard to understand um, and purposefully so. Um, I don't feel uh, respected when I go into a bank branch. Um, they're not serving my community. They're not speaking my language, whatever the case may be. They don't look like me. Um, 
so I don't, I just don't trust banks. Um, so, you know, th that, that is uh, pretty pervasive. And, and I also think that banks reciprocate that they also deter certain clients. They don't want your $500 account. That's why, that's what the fees are there for yeah. is, I mean, they do make profits from the fees, but also it costs banks the same overhead in, you know, AT, having the ATMs and having the tellers, if you have $500 or 500,000 and they'd rather have the 500,000 because they can lend it and you're not coming in every other day to take out money and put in your wages and dealing in cash, that's expensive for them. So they'll say, how do I get rid of this $500 customer? So I'm going to close my branch in the area that, where there's a lot of $500 customers and I'm going to give them fees. So they get pushed out, right? Um, that's a business decision that they've done. So, you know, um, uh, this is a sort of a nice little segue to the color of money, black banks and the racial wealth gap. I have to tell you, when I got your book, and, and you see, I was kind enough to send it to me. Um, I wish I could have read all 300 pages. I didn't, I read the beginning yeah. of the And um, I wrote literally a whole list of questions on black mm -hmm. banking until I re realized that actually the topic today was, was <laughs> good to do that. But, but let's touch on that a bit because again, yeah. it's so relevant today. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the first black bank was actually formed less than a decade, I think, after the end of slavery. Mm -hmm. And since then, black communities have been urged by both black and white leaders to rely mm -hmm. on segregated banks. But mm -hmm. even I, I read as late as 2016, there was even a black mm -hmm. money matters movement. Mm -hmm. Yet black ba banks have barely scratched the surface of closing the, the wealth gap. And today, I'm telling you what you already know, 5,000 banks, only 21 are African-American owned. I mean, yeah. who's to blame? What, what, you know, who's to blame? Do white banks bear a responsibility here too? And if Absolutely. they don't work, what do we do? Do we throw in the towel and do something else or try again? You know, it's a, yeah, lots of good questions. So of course it's, it's, a, white, it's a white problem. Um, and I think what the black banks, you know, there are, black leaders who have urged black banks for different reasons. So the 2016 um, black bank push um, was a protest. It was during the, the first Black Lives Matter nationwide kind of protest. And Killer Mike, uh, who's a, you know, a rapper said, take your money out of these, these white institutions that are not serving you and put them in black banks as a, as a means of protest. And Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, a lot of, you know, W. Du Bois, lots of leaders said, you know, I mean, so let's be clear, like for until 1965, black individuals couldn't bank at white banks for the most part. So in heavy Jim Crow in the South, in segregated Northern cities, it wasn't an option. And so you had to have black banks out of necessity because you had to have black beauty parlors and black uh, funeral homes and black whatever services you needed because the white institutions, you know, it's white water fountains, black water fountains. So the black institutions were formed out of necessity. Um, and then I, you know, in the book, I talk about how um, post-civil rights uh, revolution, um, what's happened is that um, white policymakers like Nixon and post-Nixon have used this idea of black banking to say, okay, well, we'll have white banks and you have black banks. And instead of um, integrating or at least integrating money, you, you do your own business and banking and all of that stuff. And the reason it hasn't worked is because the power and the capital have been in the white communities. And so you have you know, hundreds of years of homestead acts, FHA loans, GI Bill loans. And before that, you know, Jim Crow, sharecropping, slavery, where 
wealth is extracted from black communities and literally not able to get mortgages to build equity because of these racial exclusions. And then you say, okay, without capital, you create wealth yourselves through banking. And, and I, I try to expose in the book, like that's not how banks work. Banks don't make money out of thin air. I mean, they do, but they have to be part of a network of other banks. So it cannot be that you have black banks over here you know, building wealth while the whole society is doing this other thing, right? And not lending within those um, communities, not, not lending the right kinds of loans, right? Because the subprime market did come into those communities. And um, so there's a whole bunch of factors here. And so I, I have no, no, nothing against black banks or black businesses, obviously, um, very pro them as opposed to, I mean, take your money out, put it in a black bank, don't put it in JP uh, Morgan. But, but um, we have been putting the onus of a problem that white policymakers created on black communities to fix. And that, and that is a problem. And when we, we do this a lot, we say, okay, well, policing's a problem. Why don't black communities meet with the police and fix this? And you're like, well, policing is, policing is a problem that the white suburbs created. You know, who pays the police? What are the police doing? They're, they're keeping certain people, and this is a dark vision, but I, I think um, you really, you know, you zoom out and you see it in that way. They're keeping certain communities over-policed. There are certain communities that are over-policed. Um, those communities are the same ones where the ladders up are broken, uh, where the schools aren't, are underfunded, uh, community parks are underfunded, and, and the, 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 the public institutions that are most heavily funded are the police force. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you go to the suburbs and, you know, and, and it's different now. So some urban areas have been gentrified, so you can switch that. But, and, you know, those are areas where the funds are actually going to other things that are life enhancing as opposed to criminalizing. And so I, I just think, when, you know, when we talk about these race problems, um, I want us to not think about them as a problem for the black community to fix. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I rattled off and threw to you rather a bunch of questions. I'd just like to circle it back to the last one. So, you know, um, black banks arguably can only succeed if they have the, the, the support, arguably, of, of white banks. Mm -hmm. The optics of that are going to be odd because if white banks do it, it looks like they're segregating them. So is there a role for black, black banks or, or, or do we have to, do we have to get do we have to let those 21 go and just make sure that we're more accommodating for blacks by white bankers? I think there is a role, absolutely, for all black institutions. I mean, you talk to all, you know, one of the, the things I found in the research is that black banks during the subprime crisis did not lend subprime loans to their communities. Interesting, yeah. So, you know, these, these banks are not exploitative. Um, so absolutely, in black businesses, black, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, the, that, that trust, going back to your question about your point about trust, I think their, you know, Black banks are trusted by their communities. Um, and the reason why there's so few is because they, um, the capital isn't there. There aren't enough capital equity holders in Black communities that, that are supporting uh, or that can support a robust Black banking sector. Um, so absolutely, they're vital. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, wh where did uh, the Black banks and the CARES Act they hardly got, um, you know, they, they were able to get PPP loans, but the businesses, if you look at the data, um, an organization that I've worked with um, called Color of Change actually did this data on PPP funding and black businesses and showed that they were disproportionately deprived of funds. In other words, I think 
3% of black businesses that applied got the loans. Um, and something like 3% of Latino businesses that applied got the loans. That is a, a remarkably low percentage. Yeah. And, and part of that is the relationships with banks, the size of the businesses. They tend to be smaller, less connected. Um, so that, that also was, could have been predicted. Very good. Well, I've monopolized your time. I'm now going to go to some of the questions that have come in. And we've had a question here from Martin. Mm-hmm. How do we get lobbyists for people to balance corporate lobbyists? That's a really great question, Martin. I mean, so, I mean, there are a few, there's one lobby arm um, on Wall Street um, called Americans for Financial Reform that does really good work. And they, they basically are in a defensive posture at this point in the last 10 years. And they basically just try to block bills that banks are pushing that are deregulatory. Um, they're hardly staffed enough or well-funded enough to fight this stuff. So there are a few lobbies, but you know, I will say this, you know, politicians care about money, but they care more about votes. Yeah. And, 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 and money equals votes, but it doesn't have to, right? Um, it doesn't have to. And so I think voting um, and, and being very vocal about the kinds of politicians, the kinds of policies we will support with our vote matter. And then fighting voting disenfranchisement. I mean, really, like, you, you can't, people do get voted out of office. I mean, look at Orange County, um, Katie Porter. I mean, Katie Porter is a true fighter of banks. I mean, they probably cannot stand her. And if you've seen her dress down any of these executives, they, I, I guarantee they cannot stand her. They hate her. Um, but the, the citizens of Orange County gave her that platform. So, 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 so I think, you know, and, and I'm sure she was not, I am almost 100% sure, no lobbyists, no financial lobbyists are paying uh, Katie Porter. She's not bought. Um, and then there are other Congress uh, men and women and senators who are more um, uh, aligned with the principles. Uh, so find those people and then for the other people, vote them out, be loud. You know, votes, votes at the end of the day, that's what they want. <laughs> Get out the vote too. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So these came in before. I'm going to read this one to you if I may. Banking institutions applied and received much of the early COVID-19 CARES Act funds and after public pressure are now providing applications for smaller businesses for said funds. With the history of banks and their plundering of marginalized communities in mind, what are your thoughts on better options for saving small businesses in the future? Absolutely, I mean, yes, I mean, go around the banks. We don't, what we did was, here's the funds, here are the small businesses. And we could say, look, we want to save the smallest businesses. Those are the ones that can't survive this, right? So, so Shake Shack is an example of a public company that took out PPP loans and they got the shame that they deserved. But, but the part of the reason why they shouldn't have taken out the loans is that they can go to the capital markets to get the money that they need. And they stayed open. So they, they actually didn't need it. Where there's a ton of small businesses who you close down for three months and you will not survive. Mm. And so the PPP, those were the businesses and a lot of black and brown businesses are small businesses just by nature. So if we want to do that, here's the money, here's the businesses that should be the target. And, and we know that if we put that money through the banks, it's going to filter up. That's what banks do. They're going to choose their highest wealth customers. So get rid of that middleman and send it direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know, we know the small businesses that are all registered at the SBA. So just send the money from the SBA to the small business. It's not that hard. I mean, if you're worried about fraud, 
which tends to be rare anyway, because you can go to prison for fraud. So, you know, you really, you know, um, have to be a sponsor. Yeah. So, so, you know, you're talking about really uh, unscrupulous people, which most small business people are not. But, you know, you can verify the documents, put the bill. You don't need a bank for that. So that's, that, that was a solution that I think could have worked. Okay. Um, I was also asked to ask you, has the Federal Reserve Bank's political independence been further eroded over the, over the last three years? That's interesting. Yes, I think that that's been fascinating. So one of the things that's happened is Chairman Powell and a couple other Fed presidents have done a listening tour at communities across the country, um, which I think is long overdue. But the Fed has tended to be, especially under Greenspan and certainly under Bernanke as well, I've been very much like, um, I'm just going to look at the numbers and do the technical stuff and not worry about politics or people. And, and, and the independence really shielded them from that. But what happened during the financial crisis and, and pre is actually they weren't really that independent. Uh, what, what they did have is a lot of input from banks and not enough from communities. Um, and then the political process, I, I think they do feel that. I think the Fed, I, you know, some people say, oh, the Fed is so hyper-independent that they don't care. They do care. You know, they're humans. They, they can be removed. I mean, Trump removed Janet Yellen, which was crazy unprecedented. I don't think that gets enough attention. No president had come in and just changed the Fed um, uh, head just like that. And he just didn't like her. And Took, got rid of her and put it in Jerome Powell. Um, but I think Jerome Powell is a, you know, he's been susceptible to that public anger and distrust. Um, so I think it has eroded the public's appetite for hyperfed independence. And I think that is deservedly so because it, they were never independent. They were just independent from certain groups. Um, and And they should be paying attention to municipal bond creators as much as, you know, repo markets. And, and they were very unidirectional in the, in the voices that they were hearing. Yeah. I, I know, I read that last April, I think you're right, he was down in Mississippi and he actually went down there to look and see what was happening, which was kind of encouraging. It really was, yep. Um, okay, I am particularly interested in which advocates for very small businesses who may not belong to trade associations and the like, uh, influence the development and implementation of the legislation and also what lessons the supporters of the legislation feel they have uh, 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 learned. From the CARES Act? Is, is we're really... going to assume it's from the CARES Act. Yes, yes. Um, I think when policymakers came back, um, they did try, they, they, they did learn that um, and, and they, they probably knew this, but they, they kind of did patch up um, some of the leaky holes here. Um, the idea that um, these big companies were taking the funds and, not, you know, then laying off workers and things like that. They, they made the quid pro quo a little bit more demanding. Um, they, they came back this time and um, cut some bigger companies out. Um, I think the Fed, again, creating this small business small, medium-sized business facility is them listening and having an iterative process. So I do worry that the appetite for reform um, has shifted as, you know, one of the things I was saying during the congressional hearing, um, because we actually had the congressional hearing over Zoom, so the congressmen were zooming in from their different places. And, and usually when you're sitting in the chamber, you can tell who's a Democrat and who's a Republican by where they sit. 
Um, but during Zoom, they're not you know, identified as such. Um, but all the Republicans started their comments by saying, you know, it's crazy that we're not at the Capitol. We shouldn't be doing this anymore. This is over, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so, so I, I, what I worry about is that people are in this frame of mind that that virus is over, that the crisis is past. And, and that is just not the case. I mean, looking at some of the spikes in some of the places that are back to normal, um, we are still, you know, in a crisis. And I hope that the appetite for reform hasn't shifted. Well, that's actually a, a, a very neat segue to what must be the last question, because I, we're almost mm -hmm. on time. And that is, um, so in summary, what are the key lessons mm -hmm. we have learned from CARES, the CARES Act and COVID-19? Oh. And in terms of banking for all. Mm -hmm. So we hope, whatever it is you want to hope with, this doesn't happen again. Yeah. But if so, what are the lessons we've learned? Okay, so I'll do a lesson, the lessons of COVID and then the lessons of the, uh, the response to COVID. The lessons of COVID are that crises, you know, I, I have an adage in the book, right? When Wall Street gets a cold or the flu, Harlem gets pneumonia, and we, yeah. we talked about this before. But, yeah. you know, crises are not equalizers. They are, uh, they create, they divide in that those who have wealth, you saw this very clearly during this crisis, protected themselves, could protect themselves. They could, they had the ability to be home. I have been working from home since March without any financial suffering for us. Um, we had that ability. Some, some of the New Yorkers that I know um, went to their summer homes and just kind of camped out. Uh, they had enough wealth, even if they did lose a job, which most didn't, they could sort of withstand it. They didn't have to be out there on the front lines. Um, whereas, Poor communities, they're more likely to be service workers, less likely to have the healthcare needs, more likely to be in crowded um, situations where they're more exposed to this. Um, so, so the crisis only drew those gaps further. And then when, when you're on the margin, a small sort of wind can tip you over into foreclosures. And so I think that that other shoe has yet to drop is evictions and, you know, kids going hungry because they're out of school and, and, and the, the, the effects of, um, of just a prolonged crisis on, you know, uh, further sort of sharpening the edges of poverty. Um, and then as far as the response goes, I think you saw immediately, I don't know if this was so long ago, but um, the weekend after um, the economy just kind of tanked and you saw all of these employment numbers just spike, um, the Fed, you know, issued like a $3 trillion program for repo markets, commercial paper, um, you know, banking, uh, uh, sort of just liquidity into markets. Overnight, they just kind of, every, every program that they created in the, the year of 2008 to 2009, they unleashed in a weekend with the same monetary power behind it. And so that, I think, was the first sign where you're like, oh, this is, the banks are going to come out of this just fine. And, and the, the how long did it, maybe, how long did it take for Congress to, to get up to speed and to, to help people? Um, so I just think we know how to save, we know at least how to try to save big companies and big banks. It's easy. There are buttons to push. There are liquidity funds um, to issue. But then when we try to give liquidity to people, the mechanisms aren't there. So part of it is that it's just the institutional ability to just like send a trillion dollars to repo 
versus, you know, a million to people, you know, through a thousand dollar check, that, that infrastructure isn't there. Um, and so I think that that is a problem that has been present and was heightened during this crisis. Post office and debit cards. <laughs> Among many things. Among many. Yes, Among and many reparations, yes. <laughs> well, yes. according to my watch, we are on time. So um, I want to thank you, Miss. You know, it, it, to that long list that I introduced you with, I, I would like to add brilliant, insightful, yeah. passionate, and we are so glad that yeah. you landed with us here in, in Orange County. I uh, so appreciate that. Song, thank you very much uh, for, for making all of this happen and for, for all of those who facilitated. And those of you who, who sat in and listened to what for me was just a glorious conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.